before we get going, I just want to apologize. I used a new audio setup for this interview, and my sound, for the most part, will sound pretty hot and harsh uh, compared to usual. Luckily, it's an interview, so you won't have to hear too much of me, but I'm hoping to get my set of interviews sounding better after this one. That said, please enjoy. Welcome to the Bridge Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 31A, an interview on the political evolution of Herbert Hoover with Tom Schwartz. I'm excited to welcome Tom Schwartz to the show today. Tom is the director of the Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in Hoover's original hometown, West Branch, Iowa, which makes him the perfect person to talk to about Herbert Hoover with. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kenny. What inspired your interest in Herbert Hoover? So growing up, both sets of grandparents lived in the next town. And so I got to spend a lot of time with them. Two of them were born shortly before 1900, two shortly after. So both of my grandfathers served in World War I. And um, I heard these stories about them not only growing up, but their service in the war and what the 20s were like and also the Great Depression. Um, they both voted for Herbert Hoover, uh, and uh, they didn't have very nice things to say about uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. Now, of course, when I went to college, um, I heard the exact opposite. <laughs> and then when I got my first job, I worked for 26 years with the state of Illinois as their Lincoln guy oh. um, for uh, much of that time also for as the official historian of the state. And uh, Lincoln, Herbert Hoover, was very consistent of all the Republican presidents we've had. Uh, of course, Lincoln was the first, but Hoover remembered Lincoln on his birthday and always talked about the importance of Lincoln. Uh, when the tomb was rededicated in 1931, Hoover was president, he came out to rededicate it. and. In his little book about his political philosophy called American Individualism, published in 1922, he quotes Lincoln verbatim to talk about why the U.S. is different than the rest of the world. And he talks about the open field and fair chance. Um, so essentially, you know, that notion of the right to rise. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was approached about leaving Lincoln for Hoover, I began to read more about Hoover. Mm -hmm. and I realized there, there was this whole different person that I knew nothing about. I mean, I was pretty much in that groove with history textbooks that, you know, he mm -hmm. was president during the Depression. Um, he uh, supported the Hawley Smoot tariff and mm -hmm. he uh, uh, chased the bonish army <laughs> right. out of Washington. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm discovering this guy who is a self-made millionaire. He walks away from his fortune to do humanitarian efforts and then, you know, serves the Secretary of Commerce, which essentially creates a lot of the innovation, modern innovations that we live with today. Uh, and what's interesting is that the presidency uh, every other president, presidential library, the presidency is the pinnacle of achievement 
of the individual. Right. And with Hoover, it's kind of the exact opposite. He's <laughs> yeah. All of the achievement before and, and after the presidency. And so, you know, I realized that the Hoover's, I mean, people criticized me. They said, well, why are you trading down? You know, why are you leaving Lincoln for Hoover? And, and I said, you know, you won't understand this, but the Hoover story is every bit as big and powerful and inspirational as the Lincoln, and in some ways more so, except mm-hmm. no one knows it. Yeah. That's, I, I so agree with you. And it's interesting about Hoover is, you know, I didn't know too much about him before I read about him. And then after I read about him, I'm like, I'm not sure I understand this guy <laughs> because he's, he has so many, like, he, he, like there's contradictions to him. There's things, so many, so much interest and uh, depth to his personality and his accomplishments. So I really, I'm excited to dive into these with you. Um, and, and where I'd love to start is, you know, like when, when you're reading about Hoover, you, you see all these different big moments that make you say like, whoa, 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 I haven't seen that from someone else before. What makes him this way? And, and the first is, you know, when he's a young man and he applies for and he gets a job with a British mining company that he was in no way qualified for. You know, the job is asking for a 35-year-old engineer. He's a 22-year-old geology student, or graduate, I should say. Uh, and the account I'd read almost made it sound like he, he'd lied about his age and experience to get the role. So I'm curious, is, is that accurate? Or what exactly was yeah, yeah. going on there? So um, Hoover... Um, degree wasn't as a mining engineer, but it was in geology. Yeah. And uh, he graduates and he, he can't get a job. So he actually works in a mine in California, 10 hour days, uh, $2 a day, pushing ore carts. And he gets all of this practical experience from uh, Welsh and Cornish miners about, you know, how to survive down in the mine. He realizes, though, that um, pushing ore carts is not, he doesn't want to do that the rest of his life. So he applies <laughs> as a clerk in a mining engineering firm in San Francisco, Louis Yannan. And Yannan's so impressed with Hoover that he tells him to apply for the job at Baywick Mooring, which is the largest engineering firm in the, in the world, headquartered in London. And so uh, Hoover is asked to interview, he grows a beard because he's got a face (laughs) and he thinks he can fool him to make him look older. Uh, And he gets over and the principals interview him. And of course, they're not fooled for one bit. And (laughs) in classic British understatement, they are amazed at how youthful Americans (laughs) look. (laughs) But um, he... uh, because of the recommendation, obviously, of Yannan, who they did know, and probably of uh, Professor John Bramer, who at Stanford, who instructed Hoover and was also taken by Hoover's ability. Uh, Hoover had also spent two summers uh, as a student working for the U.S. Geological Survey doing reports. And those reports are still exist. You can read them online. So, I mean, he, he did have some practical experience, uh, but, but ultimately they interviewed him and they uh, obviously saw in Hoover what Yannan and Bramer had also seen. And so they gave him the job. 
you're right, he did have some relevant experience. And he had some, you know, guys advocating for him, his professor, his boss. But it still feels like to me, you know, if you're sitting there and you're like 22 years old and you're looking at a job that says be 35 years old, it still takes some like chutzpah to go for that job. Is is that something that has always been there through his life? Like, is there signs of that in his childhood or is that something that starts here? Because it's certainly something that we're going to see a lot more of in the future. So Hoover's childhood is interesting because his father died when he was six. His father mm-hmm. was a blacksmith who had uh, expanded into selling farm implements. And then his mother was kind of a visiting Quaker speaker, and she died when he was nine. Hoover was the middle sibling. He had an older brother and a younger sister. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of parceled out to family members Um, And eventually, at the age of 10, Hoover was sent to Oregon to be with an aunt and uncle. They had just lost a son of similar age. And so in many ways, Hoover was like replacement labor. Which is a little awkward. (laughs) (laughs) And he always spoke um, respectfully of his uncle, but I mean, it wasn't like a warm, loving relationship. Hoover kind of gets his inspiration and his support from not so much family, but for people who see promise in him and support him. Uh, In the case uh, in Oregon, Oregon, it was a librarian uh, who, who taught him to love of books. And so, you know, again, he becomes this uh, voracious reader and really self-educated in, in the sense that he didn't have a lot of formal schooling. It was more self-taught. Um, and the books obviously allowed him to go to different places in the world at different times. I mean, those became his way of learning about um, history right, and, and the world. Um, but it also kind of made him driven in yeah. the sense that, um, you know, he, he felt he needed to achieve, make something of himself. Mm. Also being a Quaker, it's, it's the interior life, right, that, that you cultivate. It's not, yeah. you're not demonstrative. Right. Um, you're driven by the inner light and by conscience. Yeah. And so that's what, again, makes kind of Hoover this sphinx. But I think also with Hoover, it was also results. You know, for him, mm-hmm. he thought being results driven, that that will make up for any la- lack of, of eloquence or, uh-huh. or self-emotion or yeah. anything else. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. It's. I thought you made a really interesting point about how the books might have inspired Hoover, the ones he read as a kid, because certainly nobody writes a book about someone who sat on his hands for 300 pages. You know, they're all people who got up and like went out and tried to do <laughs> great things. That's a really interesting point. Um, so, okay, so to jump, he, he uh, jump. we're hopping around in the story quite a bit, but after mining, you know, he, he makes a big career, makes a big name for himself, makes a ton of money. And then at the start of World War One, we kind of see his audacity, that chutzpah on display again, when he founded the Committee for the Relief of Belgium. And 
Now, like, where did that come from? How did he pull that off? You know, what makes a private citizen go from being like, well, I'm a mining executive today, but tomorrow I'm going to run an international organization that feeds millions of Europeans. Yeah. So uh, his wife, in 1914, they're living in London. They have two small sons. Uh, he's worth roughly four to seven million. Not bad. <laughs> well, his wife uh, Lou indicated that uh, they had traveled the globe five times mm. uh, in that period to 1914 and their 10-year-old son twice. Wow. Hoover had mining interests on six of the seven continents. Of all the presidents we've had and of, probably of all the presidents we will have, Hoover knew more about the world. He knew more about world trade, exchange rates, finance, and more importantly, world poverty, because mm -hmm. where the ore was that needed to be extracted was in often in the most remote, desolate, and impoverished regions. Mm -hmm. So when he went to those regions, they didn't have four-star hotels for him to stay at. I mean, he shared the same conditions, and Lou often went with him, you know, that... So here they are in London. Herbert sends Lou and the two boys home, and he's going to follow. Before he can uh, go, Millard Schaller, one of his engineering buddies, shows up and says, I married a Belgian woman. They represent the Belgian government in exile to buy food, and the British government will sell it, but they won't let me take it back to the German-occupied areas. Now, understand... France and Germany share a common border, but right. the Germans decided to shorten the war or shorten the time to take Paris. They were going to go through neutral Luxembourg and Belgium. Yeah, Belgium was the most industrialized country, the most densely populated, and in peacetime, 70 to 80% of the food was imported. Wow. So you had 90% of the country of Belgium occupied by the Germans, Mm -hmm. In fact, they quickly electrified the borders <laughs> uh, and also parts of northern France. What made the Germans mad at the Belgians is that their military actually put up a fight right. that allowed the French and the British to set up a counteroffensive and stop the advance. And so pretty much where the Germans ended up in northern France remained the trench right. So Hoover is being asked how to break the stalemate because the British and French governments refused to send food because they thought it would, number one, take the pressure off of the German government, right. and number two, be used by the German military. What Hoover, he slept on it. And the following day, he supposedly came down. He said, let the fortune go to hell. That's a little bit dramatic. Uh, <laughs> But, I mean, we do know that at many times he put up his own personal fortune as collateral yeah. to mm -hmm. get shipments of food there. What he was able to do is to get the German, the French, and the, the British government to recognize what today we call an NGO, non-governmental organization, the Commission for Relief in Belgium, which didn't represent an, any nation, but Hoover personally, Brant Whitlock, who was the U.S. ambassador to Belgium, and mm. Spanish ambassador to Belgium. Um, 
what Hoover had to do was to raise the money, to locate the food, to ship it in his own ships to Rotterdam. The Netherlands was a neutral country throughout World War I. And the, the Netherlands agreed, the Dutch agreed to uh, provide transport of the food from Rotterdam, from canal boats and mostly canal mm. boats, but also railroad to the German uh, occupied border or Belgium. And then the German military and members of the Commission for Relief in Belgium would take it over that it had to be inspected. And then it went to over 400 warehouses, which were then distributed to over 4,000 communes uh, that were operated by a Belgian organization, uh, the Committee Nationale. Hoover raised from 1914 to 1918 roughly a billion dollars and nineteen ten dollars <laughs> to provide food for roughly wow. eight million people. He then reached out to Stanford because uh, he asked the academics at Stanford, "Okay, how many calories does it take to keep someone alive?" Ah, okay. And they figured that out. And then what need to be the nutritional components of those calories? So they didn't talk about vitamins at that time, but you know, uh, fat. Uh, sugar. He was given that. Knowing that, he was able to figure out how many people he could feed with the shipments he was getting. He understood that the populations at most risk in war are children, women, yeah. and elderly. Mm. So children were given hot lunches at school. And that way, he knew that they would get the necessary caloric and nutritional count. Yeah. Adults were required to pay something hmm. for their meals. Yeah. And that way it could be cost effective. Hoover never took a salary. All of the Americans who worked for them worked without a salary. Right. That way he was able to keep administrative costs uh, down to one half of 1%. It's pretty so, good. Yeah, yeah, all of the money that, that he was raising went to this. What are some of the challenges that he faced in establishing the CRB? Uh, for example, I imagine the British were sitting there saying, we have a blockade. We don't want food to go through. I imagine the Germans might have been thinking, you know, you're an American. Do we really want you walking around over here? The whole English Channel was mined. Yeah. And so for his boats to get through those mines to Rotterdam, he needed to be able to tell them what to do. Winston Churchill and Lord Kitchener were entirely opposed to the CRB because they had this mistaken notion that if the civilian population of Belgium had to face starvation, that they would rise up against right. their German occupiers. And well, that never really happens. And he had support in the British cabinet to overrule them. And of course, Churchill lost credibility after Gallipoli and had to resign. But there's evidence that when Hoover left Belgium to come to London to deal with matters, he had Hoover strip search as a spy. <laughs> what? Winston had him do that? You know, Hoover put up with these indignities because I yeah. think he understood that there was something more important at stake. Though I'm sure, I mean, he and Churchill never got along. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Germans were very difficult and very officious. Hoover had to make sure 
that the people that were working for the CRB were above suspicion because the Germans were willing to take any minor offense of regulations mm. and use it against the Americans as being spies. And so it wasn't easy. But again, I, I think Hoover did some really smart things. All of the Americans that were at Oxford as Rhodes Scholars, he recruited them to work uh, in the CRB. Yeah. And one of the interesting things is that so many of these folks, he mentors and later go on to operate international relief organizations after World War II. How interesting. So wow. he, he kind of mentors this generation of of leaders in humanitarian organizations. That's awesome. So, so that's how he navigates the Germans and the British and, and how he gets the CRB going. And after the war, uh, or, or not after the war, after the United States enters the war, he heads back across the Atlantic and he gets himself a job as basically the American food czar. Now, how the heck does he convince Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> you should well, put me in charge of the entire agricultural system of the United States? So Hoover had been working with Colonel House, who was Wilson's yeah. uh, closest advisor. Yeah. Uh, on, like chief of staff, uh, for, basically. For the, the, the CRB. And House realizes that Hoover would be perfect mm. to head this U.S. Food Administration. And so, uh, and understand, um, Hoover's lived his whole adult life abroad. He hasn't voted in any election. They don't know if he's a Republican or Democrat. So Hoover agrees. And U.S. Food Administration has to provide sufficient food for the war effort. Yeah. Well, so the first task facing, facing Hoover is, where do I get this food from? Well, there are two ways you can get it. One is to get farmers to grow more, but that takes time. Mm -hmm. And the other is to get Americans to consume less. That's a hard task. <laughs> so what Hoover does is he makes this appeal to American housewives who essentially control food consumption at home. And he gets them to sign pledge cards. Mm -hmm. And by signing the pledge cards, he gets over uh, 1.5 million women to sign them. And they agree to hooverize. <laughs> uh, and by hooverizing, it means every day you eliminate one or more of the essential food elements needed to win the war. Wheat, meat, fat, sugar. Mm -hmm. And so you have meatless Mondays, and wheatless Wednesdays, mm -hmm. and by doing that, you hooverize. He was able to get Americans to voluntarily. Now, there was no rationing here. Right, right. To voluntarily reduce their consumption of those essential foodstuffs by 15%. And that kind of underscored his philosophy that if you explain the situation to people, they will voluntarily provide the help you need. Yeah. Of course, that runs into trouble with the Depression. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But, I mean, we'll have issues with uh, it, communicating it, it, that later in life. <laughs> it served him well there. You know, to be honest, the biggest savings in wheat and those things were through bakeries and restaurants, you know, larger institutions rather than homes. Interesting. And 
also much of what Hoover is able to do is, again, kind of that compulsory power of government in, in order to put price ceilings on things right, because right. Of, of the necessity of war, which in peacetime, no one would abide by. You know, Hoover is able to be successful in meeting the goal. He goes with Wilson to Versailles after the war at mm-hmm. the end. And in some ways, he's more popular than Wilson because <laughs> yeah. Congress passed over $800 million to feed Europe in its recovery with through the American Relief Administration. Mm-hmm. Hoover oversees those efforts. And when the money runs out, he creates a private organization, the Children's American Relief Administration, to continue the feeding. He also has to fight the British, the French, and even Wilson on feeding Germany. They wanted to punish the Germans. Yeah. Um, And he finds a way around that because he understands that, as he explained in feeding the Russians in the 20s, even Bolsheviks, Mm -hmm. that hungry people have no politics. Yeah. (laughs) And, and, And so, you know, Hoover set up feeding programs in Germany and in Austria after the war, even though that was not a very popular position. And and in doing so, he he kind of created the model for the care package. And so he allowed Mm -hmm. relatives in the States to go to the bank and buy either a week's or a month's worth of food. And they sent a food coupon then over seas and the relatives in Austria and Germany could then redeem it at a warehouse to get their months or their weeks worth of food. Yeah. So, so through this time, he, he is now a name. He's very famous, you know, and, but as you mentioned a moment ago, no one's really sure if he's a Democrat or Republican. Right. And as that 1920 presidential election comes up, you know, both parties are kind of interested. Like FDR is kind of feeling them out like, Hey, I'll be your running mate. Let's go. And he decides he's Republican instead. So, what is it that draws him to the Republicans? You know, you mentioned he's he hasn't voted. He's been overseas. What makes him come back to the United States and say the GOP is my party? So Hoover was always a progressive and there were both Democratic progressives and Republicans. I mean, Theodore Roosevelt, who eventually came out and said, you know, I'm a Theodore Roosevelt Republican progressive. Interesting. Now, the problem, one of the problems with Hoover was that he was never conservative enough for the conservative Republicans, and he was never progressive enough for <laughs> the Republicans. And he wasn't a party man. Yeah. I mean, Hoover never had that ability to <laughs> deal with questions of patronage yeah. and, you know, of uh, horse trading. In 1920, yeah, his name is being advanced by both parties, and he comes out as a progressive Republican. Warren G. Harding gets the nomination, mm-hmm. and he offers Hoover, you can either be Secretary of Interior or Secretary of Treasury, or Secretary of Commerce, excuse me. Yeah. And Hoover loved fishing. So to be Interior, <laughs> you get to be over the national parks. And, yeah. you know, he picks commerce, which is this kind of sleepy backwater. Right. Like <laughs> the most. possibly least important one. <laughs> and And also at the same time, He's asked to lunch by Daniel Guggenheim. Now, 
the Guggenheim family made its fortune in mining. And he offered Hoover to take over the mining operations of, of the Guggenheim family at an annual salary. And this is 1921. Yeah. Annual salary of 500000 a year. And Hoover says, no, I'm going to be Commerce Secretary and get a couple thousand. <laughs> right. Much smaller paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think he made that decision back in 1914, right? Yeah, yeah. The CRB, that it's not the money anymore. I mean, you know, it's like, what's what's going to be my legacy? What what yeah. What can I do to deal with all of the need in the world? And so when he takes over as Commerce Secretary, he's also dealing three years with this famine in Russia where he's using the agency that he created, privatized, to feed over 10 million Russians on a daily basis. Wow. And, you know, he's got people over there that he had trained and worked with in the Commission for Relief in Belgium and also with mm -hmm. the American mm -hmm. Relief Administration. So, you know, he, he's got a trained workforce. He doesn't have to be over there and, and, and look at it. So what does he do with commerce? He realizes that what's really transforming in the 20s, it's not the roaring 20s. Um, right. Not yet. <laughs> in, in that sense, what's happening is that with Henry Ford's eight hour a day, $5 a day, you know, 40 hour work week, American workers have more disposable income. They have more leisure time. Mm -hmm. What's more, most important is that with time payments, they can buy big ticket items like a car or a washing machine. And the car gives them mobility, so they're no longer stuck right. in a little town. They can get and they can go. And Hoover realizes that they're going to need outlets for their disposable income and, and their time. Yeah. So in commerce, he, he works to stock the fisheries. Um, yeah to set aside uh, more land, um, but also to try to make that American dream within the reach of every American. Yeah. And so he gets industries to get together and to do something that today we take for granted, uh, but then was novel, and that is to create industrial standards. Right. There were 42 different size milk containers. Right. And Hoover got them to agree to set pint, quart, half gallon, gallon. Yeah. Uh, the dozen eggs, the size of the brick uh, that is used in construction, the plumbing uh, standards are the Hoover standards, um, the thread count on nuts and bolts. And, and this stuff, is, is this like a matter of saving money across industry and across the economy? Or is this a matter of now when I go to the hardware store, I know my screw is going to fit in my nut and I can work on things around right, the house. Right. Yeah. You, you, and, you know, I mean, that was the big frustration. Emerging technologies like radio, uh, Hoover had to step in because radio stations were stepping on one another's signals. So sure. he used that to regulate the airwaves. He set up several highway traffic safety commissions there was not, once you left your locale, you didn't know what the rules of the road were. 
Uh, there, <laughs> there, there wasn't even a standard uh, agreement on a red versus green signal. Oh, my gosh. So all these things had to be established. Hoover also saw the future of aviation. Most aviation were kind of hobbyists, people trying to set records, and it was used to carry the U.S. mail. That was kind of the government subsidy for it. Mm -hmm. Hoover realized that passengers would replace mail. And so mm -hmm. he essentially set the foundation, the groundwork that allowed for commercial aviation. He headed the Colorado River Commission, yep. which essentially regulated water usage of the Colorado River and the creation of the Hoover Dam in order to control not only the flood flooding, but yeah. also to generate hydroelectric power yeah. know, for that region. He also was involved in two private groups, the Child Health Association, which pushed to pasteurize milk, which uh, cut, mm. drastically cut infant mortality in yeah. urban areas, and uh, childhood inoculations. But they also published literature, the importance of pregnant mothers and getting regular checkups, the importance of early childhood education, of a healthful diet. I mean, all of these things we take for granted now was kind of novel at that time. And he also, and this is something he shared with Franklin Roosevelt, who was governor of New York at the time, they served on uh, the Better Homes of America, which essentially was to try to provide information to uh, average Americans on how to build and, uh, and again, thinking that the home was kind of the anchor for family stability and that that was, again, part of that notion of the American dream to have your own home. And whereas a Sears home, you had to buy the plans, yeah. the tools, the lumber, the paint, all from Sears. Yep. Better homes just provided free huh. and wow. allowed people to figure out, you know, if they wanted to modify them and, you know, where to, where to get. So, and, and now everything you just said, that sounds like way more than any commerce secretary had probably ever done before. So, you know, as, as Hoover's doing this, is he stepping on people's toes? You know, like the joke was he's the secretary of commerce and the undersecretary of everything else. How does he manage to do all this? So he stepped on toes and Harding's uh, secretary of agriculture was uh, someone named Wallace and whose son, Henry Wallace, became Franklin Roosevelt's vice president. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Henry Wallace, of course, uh, made his fortune by uh, pioneer seed and hybrid corn. But he and his father had a different philosophy on how to support agriculture and farming than Hoover. Hoover was a big proponent of uh, farm cooperatives. And he also stepped on toes and people in the State Department because much of the work of the Department of Commerce dealt with standards that, that dealt with international trade. And the thing is, is that most people were happy to defer to Hoover because they didn't have to worry about doing the work. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is that Hoover was known for his efficiency throughout his whole career, mining career, and then in government. I mean, he was a big proponent of eliminating waste, of finding efficiencies. And so Hoover didn't mind being the workhorse. And it was all part of this larger vision. 
you know, that what he was working toward was providing kind of a better life for average Americans and allowing them to pursue a better life on their own. I don't think Hoover always thought that he was doing this for them. His philosophy was that in the open field and fair chance, so that Mm. uh, you need to remove as many barriers and obstacles from individual achievement, but it's still up to the individual to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that makes sense too, given his response to the great depression that's going to come later, you know, for sure. Uh, one of the big things that happens while he's Secretary of Commerce is the the Mississippi River flood. And he is sent out there, out to the field to, to figure out a response. It, in what ways is this something that had not happened before? Is, is this the first time the federal government really gets involved in disaster response? Uh, if not, like how, what impact does this have on the government's role there? So the federal government doesn't get involved. <laughs> okay. Calvin Coolidge is being asked by governors of the affected areas to help, and he won't. So then they say, can you send Hoover? So <laughs> Wait. Hoover, Hoover, as a private citizen, what? <laughs> goes, he uses a train car as kind of his headquarters to visit these areas. And he largely works through the American Red Cross. Now, of course, Hoover had a long relationship with the American Red Cross yeah. in his, his previous humanitarian efforts. And so he raises $15 million. The uh, most recent study and comprehensive study of the flood is John Barry's Rising Tide. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, Barry takes Hoover to task because understand that the most affected parts were the Deep South. Mm. The governor of Mississippi was the Grand Wizard of the Klan. Not great. And and the resettlement camps were segregated. Mm -hmm. But there were numerous reports of white landowners going into the black resettlement camps and at gunpoint taking the men and forcing them Mm -hmm. to do sandbag and, you know, their labor. Hoover, because he had lived abroad, really hadn't understood what was going on. He had the NAACP investigate. They gave Hoover a report and he read it and he was horrified, but he went to them and he said, so can you tone this down? Because if this report is released as is, it may dramatically impact fundraising efforts. Wow. Victims. And they do. But there are certain promises, you know, that Hoover offers after the crisis. You know, he, he offers he's going to make amends mm-hmm. and provide more assistance to the blacks that are were yeah. affected. And of course, when he gets elected president, before he can really cash in on those promises, mm. you know, the bottom right. falls out of the economy. Yeah. Now, I don't think he was being insincere. I think right. it's the unfolding of events. And he did provide assistance to the extent he could. He yeah. provided loans and seeds to black mm. sharecroppers 
mm-hmm. land after the flood. But clearly, he intended to do more. Yeah. And, and it was kind of circumstances prevented him. Now, the interesting so that, thing is that Franklin Roosevelt, because he needed the votes of Southern Democrats for his New Deal policy, yeah. essentially kind of made an unspoken pact that you could deal with race relations in your own way if you support my New Deal legislation. And so there was really no attempt under Roosevelt, you know, for example, anti-lynching laws or anything. Yeah, kind of the same deal Wilson made. And and that kind of also explains why it took until the 50s to get to the civil rights movement. And, yeah. you know, I mean, Monday we're going to be celebrating Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And, yeah, yeah. But that's kind of his old story of having to pick up that fight and carry it forward. Thank you for bringing that context to what was happening with the speed flood. And and so and also to, to the original question of what impact did this have on federal government response? Naturally, that sounds like none. Like, th- yeah, this, I don't think I don't think you can. It wasn't really involved. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it comes it comes rather late. This idea of the federal government being the first line of response you get with Roosevelt. And we'll get to that later of why Hoover, you know, part of it though is that Hoover being a progressive wasn't opposed to using federal government and federal power in emergencies. The, The difference is that he felt that once the emergency was over, that the power ought to be, given back to its original source, whether that be local, mm-hmm. state, regional, or, or, or private, private industry, yeah. um, and that the government should back away. And it's kind of like the idea of you keep going to the same well over and over again. Yeah. You know, eventually <laughs> it'll get to the point that the federal government may not, not have the resources to respond. So jumping further ahead, when, when Hoover gets elected president in 1929, we talked about earlier how he's not the was, warmest, fuzziest guy, not the most eloquent guy, not a coalition builder like Lincoln, you know. How did that aversion, you know, impact his ability to be an effective president? So it's often argued that if Hoover had been elected at any other time, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he, people would remember him more. I think that what people need to understand is that there's still no consensus on what caused the Great Depression, why it happened, why it lasted so long, because we call it the Great Depression because it lasts until after World War II. And what has the most consensus is that the Federal Reserve, when the market crashed, did not ease up the federal interest rate soon enough. Mm -hmm. And so that by the time it started lowering the discount rate, the available money supply and circulation had already declined by 30% hmm. by 19, in the 1930s. And so what should have been like a recession, uh, just a kind of a brief dip in the economy, became a full-fledged depression. Our understanding of economic theory was in its infancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Maynard Keynes' general theory about the government, you know, flooding the economy with with money for public mm-hmm. projects, that's not written until 1936. Mm-hmm. So there are kind of some general 
guidelines. Uh, Hoover started practicing it. Uh, but understand, most public investment and public works projects, 70 to 80% were done at the state level. Right, right. Not at the federal level. Yeah. And so, you know, what Hoover was doing was unorthodox, got a lot of criticism. Franklin Roosevelt criticizes him in 32 because of his deficit spending and he raised taxes. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. You know, so again, this big spend uh, Republican guy. Uh, and the thing is, is that no one, no sitting president, Republican, Democrat, would have at that time spent what was necessary to get the country out of depression. It, it took war and the threat of, you know, national survival to remove those those barriers. Now, the, the other thing that both Hoover and Roosevelt struggled with yeah. was that if you provide direct relief with no strings attached, right, that struck as being like the dole, the British <laughs> model, yeah, and, and where people then have no incentive to work, and and both Hoover and Roosevelt worried about, you know, government subsidies if it's going to create this mindset in people. I think the big difference though was that again, knowing Hoover's philosophy you know, believing in the individual is kind of this source of creativity mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, innovation that, uh, you know, again, government should be there to assist. But again, Hoover sensed that the voluntary efforts at the local and state levels, community chess would be sufficient. Yeah, He set up organizations around the country to report to him on what conditions were like. And the problem was, is that many of the people that manned those didn't want to tell the truth because it would show that their actions weren't sufficient. And so he was, he he was getting a a lot of bad information, but I think he also knew, you know, he was trying to find a way within his philosophical framework. And the irony is that when the, uh, the banks started collapsing, after the election, and yeah. especially in this interregnum period. Yeah, yeah. He when when his, FDR is president-elect during yeah, that period. He and his advisors came up with a plan, and they were going to call for a bank moratorium. They were going to use the Reconstruction Finance Corporation to evaluate the health of the banks and which ones to support with loans, mm-hmm. which ones to let go belly up. And part of what Hoover thought was the problem was that the Democrats insisted that the loans going through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation of the banks be made public. And Hoover hmm. realized if you do that, it's going to cause a panic, you know, a run Yeah, the- banks don't want to show their finances. <laughs> which, 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 in fact, it did. But yeah. Hoover couldn't get Roosevelt to respond. Mm-hmm. And he finally had to send a Secret Service officer with a, a letter to deliver in order to get a phone call. And essentially Roosevelt, being a very shrewd politician, said, look it, if this is such a good idea, then do it. But you don't don't need me to help. What's interesting is that 
the moment he takes the oath of office. He does it. <laughs> he declares, yes, he declares yeah. a bank holiday. Yeah. And he essentially uses Hoover's people in the Treasury who devised the plan yeah. to carry it out. Because when administrations change, it's not like a light switch. Right. No, no. Yeah. And all of the people in the different departments change. So, I mean, I, and I think that was another bitter pill for Hoover. And I want to talk more about the the bitter pills that Hoover then had to swallow, you know, following eight years. It's really interesting to me that Hoover, who you know you described, he considered himself a progressive Republican. And he had certainly uh, espoused for expanses of federal power, you know, helping to regulate things. Foods are like in, in various times and roles. But he was a huge opponent of the New Deal. And I'm curious why, because, you know, you look at the New Deal in many ways it looks like the kind of technocratic solution that Hoover would have supported, uh, but he didn't here. So why does he suddenly hate the New Deal? Uh, and also, did he still consider himself a progressive, you know, after this time? Is there is there any point where he starts to say, I'm a conservative now? So Hoover, like George Orwell, <laughs> complained about the corruption of language. Ah. Hoover always considered himself a liberal, but okay. in terms of a 19th century definition. Absolutely. Very different word back then. Yeah. Yes. And yet Roosevelt and the New Dealers were taking these terms and giving them new meanings, mm. which Hoover felt was a corruption of what they really stood for. Hoover, again, had his philosophy and what he feared with the New Deal was government taking a problem and making it into a permanent government bureaucracy rather than, in Hoover's view, once the crisis is over, let it revert back to whether you know it, it's private sector or local or state to handle. If everyone thinks that the federal government now is going to deal with it, they're not going to make any provisions and dealing with it because it's no longer their problem, right? Right. And Hoover also didn't trust bureaucracies. Hmm. He knew they were inefficient. That's that's interesting from him. (laughs) Uh, He he knew they were inefficient. He knew also that they tended to, even if the problem that they were set up to fix got fixed, they would be self-perpetuating. They'd find something new Hmm. to Mm -hmm. expand. And so... He really, though, feared for individual, the the freedom of the individual. If government now is going to be calling all the shots and setting the rules and regulations, how is that going to affect individuals and their ability to be innovative and creative? Mm. And he also was a firm believer in volunteerism. You know, if the government now is going to be doing all of this, why do you need voluntary organizations? You know, where is... What's going to happen to that sense in the local community where if they see a need, they refuse to respond because the federal government will take care of that. And so I think, you know, a lot of Hoover's criticism to the New Deal was, number one, well, even historians favorable to Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal, admit that the programs were a mess that were chaotic. Especially the first ones. They, they, like, they, 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 
it's kind of like throwing spaghetti on yeah. the wall and see what sticks. And it was all improvisational. And Roosevelt loved improvisation. Yeah. In part, it was because by setting up all of these different uh, government agencies and bureaus that often overlap in, in, in terms of authority, they had to go to him. And so no one under him got too much power. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He, he got to control all that. Yeah. And, you know, again, he was a master politician and more importantly, a master communicator. Uh, FDR was. But it, it, it wasn't necessarily the best way to run a government. <laughs> got it. So I, I got two last questions on okay. Hoover for you. And, and the first is, what is the lasting impact and legacy of Herbert Hoover on the presidency and the U.S. government? Believe it or not, Hoover had accomplishments as president. <laughs> what, what, what most people would know was that he used the power of the, the federal government uh, to put Al Capone in jail and, you know, to try to remove the control of Capone over all aspects of Chicago and Illinois government. Mm -hmm. um, he also came up with the plans for the St. Lawrence Seaway, which hmm. of Congress didn't appropriate the funds until the 50s. Yeah. Um, he did major reform of criminal justice and federal prison systems, which mm -hmm. again served for models for the states to emulate. Um, he did a major naval disarmament treaty, and he expanded the uh, national parks and arches, glacier, Death Valley. Oh. Um, yeah. Wow. Four million acres for the, for the Forest Service. So, I mean, there were things he did, but it all gets overshadowed by the Depression. <laughs> major legacy is really yeah. as post-president, and that is how does an ex-president continue to serve in a capacity, not as a partisan, but as a public servant. Hmm. And there he served Harry Truman, 71-year-old guy, comes out of retirement and essentially goes, does a 38-country inspection in 50-some days to hmm. do a report for Truman on post-war food. Hmm medical and clothing needs, you know, humanitarian yeah. needs. After World War II, yeah. And he gives that to George Marshall. Marshall uses parts of it for the Marshall Plan. Wow. But then Truman asks Hoover to head a bipartisan commission to find efficiencies and to reduce the size and the cost of government, mm -hmm. thinking that he's going to get a benefit from the end of World War II. Right. <laughs> yeah. Hoover, Hoover heads the commission, Joseph P. Kennedy, the father, yeah. uh, the president, and illustrious other sons um, is kind of the leading Democrat. They get along great. And 70% mm -hmm. of the recommendations are adopted and states set up their own little Hoover commission. He does another one under Eisenhower, not as popular. But what happens is that Korean War, yeah, Nick, Cold War. I mean, yeah. you, you get all of that, which, uh, again, whatever savings from World War II immediately gets supersized in creating the national security uh, apparatus. And, and so 
but still, I mean, I think Hoover shows he got along well with Truman mm-hmm. and, and every president really up to, to Johnson yeah. know, reached out and wanted Hoover's advice and assistance. Thank you. And the, the last question I like to ask is what lessons in leadership can we learn from Hoover? You don't have to be president to make a difference. It's <laughs> a great and, lesson. <laughs> and yeah, no, I, I mean, I think both Hoover and his wife thought that the most important thing a person could do is when they see a need to address it. And, and most important to do it in a way that doesn't bring attention to yourself but almost uh, stealth philanthropy mm-hmm. so that the person who is the beneficiary of the assistance doesn't feel beholden to you, mm. but rather can use the assistance and then in their own capacity, pay it forward. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think Hoover's asking every one of us to be the power one yeah, and to make a difference. Awesome. It doesn't have to be big. I mean, <laughs> but make a difference. If you've enjoyed this interview with Tom and want to learn more about Hoover, please consider visiting the Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch, Iowa, and give the library a visit online at hoover.archives.gov. Thank you for your time, Tom. Thank you, Kenny. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, bug them to listen until they can describe the evolution of the two-party system, and then write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, it's again not quite in stone, but it'll either be an episode on how Hoover's years as a businessman shaped his years in office, or an episode on the origins of the Great Depression and why Hoover's attempts to grapple with it just didn't work. One of those next, an abridged presidential histories. <laughs>